Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. How we move through the world, whether we can engage with others or we back away or we isolate, how much confidence we have, whether we can be rational or whether we will be uh, caught up in a um, uh, a uh, activated distressing spiral is not actually determined by um, our thinking. It's not determined by um, so much uh, necessarily anything outside of the what's called your autonomic nervous system. We know this from the uh, work of Stephen Porges and the polyvagal, which shows that people, human beings, have basically three different settings, three different settings of their nervous system, and depending upon which setting you're in, determines, sets the abilities of being either having a kind of rational, detached, thoughtful, responsive engagement with others, or a uh, survival-based, fight-flight state, or even a shutdown, depressed, isolated, disengaged state. These three states have three, of course, different names, and uh, for the the, the highest state, when you're in what's known as the ventral parasympathetic, you're in approach. Some people call it social engage. Barbara Fredrickson, a famous psychologist, calls it broaden and build. Uh, I like to just call it approach. Approach or social engagement, we can rest. You can digest your food. You can sleep well. You'll heal from injuries well because your immune system will function. You'll be able to connect with others. Your heart rate will not be too beating too fast. Your blood pressure will be low. You will be slow to respond in situations that require some (coughs) detached evaluation. You'll be able to, most importantly, when you're in the ventral parasympathetic, you'll be able to express the feelings in your body through your face. There's actually nerve clusters that run from the abdomen and the chest, which hold some of the earlier emotional activations, and they're striated nerves, which means they they send their signals very fast and they express directly your state of being through your face. And when you're in this state, you can convey your emotions, but not in a threatening way. You can convey your needs, both through your facial expressions, the tone (coughs) of your voice, and through your choice of words. So you're in the highest state that a human being can attain when you're in uh, the approach state. You're using regions of the brain that were the last to be wired Actually, you weren't wired until you were in your 20s, the dorsolateral. So what that means is you can detach, stop from acting. You can ask yourself, um, you can look at a situation from uh, different uh, uh, vantage points. You can engage the dorsal medial, which allows you to empathetically worry about how, or concern about how others are feeling and doing. So when you're in approach or the ventral parasympathetic state, all things are possible. You're able to be creative. You have a greater degree of security in your life. The second state is what's known as withdrawal. Unlike approach, which allows you to engage, withdrawal means you need to change uh, an, an engagement. In that state, you're in what's called your sympathetic nervous system. You're not in your parasympathetic. You're in your sympathetic, and you're playing like nice little piano riff. 
I'm in my sympathetic mood. <laughs> I gotta come up with a theme for it. Like, <laughs> shut down. Uh, so you're in mobilization. You're hypervigilant. It's difficult to sleep. You have obsessive, repetitive thoughts, but they're the same damn thought over and over again. Maybe you're worrying, they're catastrophizing thought. You're worrying about financial uh, crises or losses or uh, losing connections, losing a job or whatever. In this, you're in fight or flight. Your immune system is now not functioning completely. You're no longer producing white blood cells. You're just producing red blood cells because you're uh, essentially, you, your body's anticipating an attack and it thinks you're gonna need to have red blood cells to repair tissue damage. It overrides dorsolateral function, and but it will leave you in, again, ventral medial so you can have those obsessive self-oriented thoughts that can keep you awake at night. And those thoughts will be spiraling. It's essentially a fast reaction. When you're in the higher parasympathetic or approach state, you're in slow response. You're not very reactive. But when you're in withdrawal, you're in fast reaction. Everything is fast. You don't have any time to stop. You're on alert. You don't feel safe. You feel you need to do something. The third state is freeze. So we have approach, withdraw, and freeze. This is the oldest system in the body. It's also parasympathetic, but it's not ventral, meaning it uses the face, meaning you can express and use your dorsal lateral. When you're in the old dorsal parasympathetic, you shut down, you dissociate, you disconnect, you depersonalize, you're not aware fully of your body anymore. All of the frontal lobe is now not working. Only the right amygdala generally is recording uh, information, and that's the most ancient uh, sort of memory structure of the brain. Uh, you're unresponsive. So if approach is slow response and sympathetic nervous system withdrawal is fast reaction, then freeze is no response, no reaction, disconnection, when people have an attachment loss and they go into a dorsal dive, they isolate, they get brain fog, they can't think, they can't get out of bed, they don't want to be around people. There's just this depressive with entire uh, removal. It's a shutdown state. It's associated with shock and uh, it's associated with uh, children who grow up in abusive families very often wind up in dorsal dives in their adult life. Very dangerous if your child could actually kill people, they actually can stop heart functioning because when you're in the dorsal dive, literally all of the neural functioning of when you're in your, your normal parasympathetic shuts down. So what determines which of these three states you move between? And, determines everything that you're capable of. Well, it's not your thinking, it's not your rational mind, it's not, you can't talk yourself into being a, you know, a parasympathetic. What it is is an area of your brain called the right amygdala. Again, that's a very ancient, very, very, not very smart, uh, but exceedingly influential part, most important, I, uh, many would argue, of the brain. Um, right, your amygdala gets all of the information before it's anywhere near consciousness. It gets a preview of every single bit of information you will ever know, most of which you will never ever be conscious of. There's countless sensory information, body sensations, impressions, sounds that are going to your thalamus, then to your amygdala, and then finally to all the different regions of your brain for processing. And some of them will be deemed important enough that you'll become aware of them, but very, very, very small amounts. But your amygdala is sifting through this completely undigested, unprocessed 
sensory information. And what it's looking for is anything that could fall under the category of a danger cue. What's a danger cue? A danger cue, because we're a social species, is anything that suggests disconnection, judgment, loss of an attachment figure, physical threat. So you're constantly, before you consciously are aware of information, before even you've accurately turned it into visual processing, all this raw data is going through this amygdala, and it's just looking for certain cues, not very well, that suggest that you're not safe. Either you might expect someone to judge, evaluate, uh, disconnect, might be just someone looking away suddenly when you're trying to bond. It could be someone who suddenly gives you a facial expression that doesn't in any way meet your expectations of kindness. And if it sees one of these things, it will activate you from parasympathetic down to sympathetic, alert, hypervigilance, on your guard, no longer being able to be calm and uh, creative and engage. You won't feel safe to express your feelings. You'll do anything in that situation to become safe. So for example, if you're in a conversation, you're with a good friend, you expect attention and uh, someone to mirror your emotions or at least be sympathetic. And when you divulge something that's very vulnerable, instead of giving you a soothing look, you see they're looking at their phone. And that's, you know, that simple glance away from you, your amygdala spots it well before you're conscious, well before you, you know, become even aware of it a half a second earlier, and it triggers your sympathetic nervous system. And before you know it, your heartbeat starts to race and your body becomes tense. And the part of your brain that allows you to uh, just, you know, approach this in a friendly way and say, um, oh, do you need to look at your phone? What will unconsciously happen is you'll be in alert and you'll emotionally do anything to keep that person's attention. So you change the subject or you'll become defensive or you'll feel um, like, why am I even bothering? It'll trigger all these reactive states rather than responsive states. Of course, your amygdala can also spot positive things. If you get a come-hither look, it might activate sex as a very mobilization state. So it might, you might like suddenly go out of the connect into a sort of, uh, sort of a, a sexual encounter. Uh, you might also see something that you want to acquire, and it can activate the mobilization state. But when we're in our highest, when we're not craving, we're not uh, engaged in, try, in uh, initiating sexual contact or acquiring something, or we're not alert, we're in our highest state. Rest, digest, engage, be creative, express ourselves. And all these decisions are being made by arguably one of the most, the earliest parts of the brain that's found in all mammals. So essentially the most influential part of the human brain is no different from any, uh, from what we would find in cats or dogs or, you know, uh, rodents in fact. Just a little bit more evolved, but not very. So stressful environments, environments where we don't feel uh, attuned to where we attuned. I'm going to tell what attunement means. Situations where we don't feel that someone is meeting us with eye contact and mirroring our our emotional states. Situations where we feel someone could suddenly lose interest in us. Situations where we are uh, constantly being evaluated. Jobs, livelihoods, where there's constant assessment. All of these types of situations have been shown by Porges, uh, one of the great, uh, um, not only neurologists, but uh, uh, probably the most influential in this arena, locks us into the sympathetic nervous system and can make us constantly 
overreactive, prone to withdrawal, lack of trust, lack of feeling uh, permitted to be authentic and creative, to express different parts of ourselves, to relax. And that state can, over time, have disastrous effects on our immune system and on our ability to be authentic in relationships where we are safe. Because if you're constantly in a job where you're stressed out or constantly in a living situation with roommates or with people where you don't feel in any way emotionally secure, then you can lock yourself into chronic mobilization. And that's uh, that's not bad. That's, it's not only bad for your, psych, your psychobiological function, but your immune structures and, and all that. In relationships where there is attunement, where we do this sort of deep set need for connection is met, then what happens is we wind up locked into the parasympathetic. We can relax. We can not have to react, we can take our time, respond, we can express different parts of ourselves, we can uh, develop a sense of trust. So the key factor is attunement that uh, addresses, your, your amygdala is doing something called neuroception. Neuroception is it's looking through all this data before it becomes conscious and it's making all these decisions about what state of being, what state your nervous system is going to be pre-consciously, and that's called neuroception. And it's looking for attunement. So what is attunement? Attunement is the need we've had uh, from the very moment we're born. It's what keeps us alive. It's what bonds us with caregivers. It's essentially the ability of human beings to lock in with each other, to emotionally synchronize so that our limbic systems and our nervous systems now down regulate if we're both if you're attuned with someone and they are anxious or worried and you're calm you don't need to say anything you don't need to do anything for them just by being with them listening your face ex your facial expressions change in tandem with the words that they are saying, you lock in and you develop what is called co-regulation. You literally can soothe each other and you don't need any words. You just, your presence, your bearing witness, your proximity, your interest in them, your eye contact, your body language does all the work for you. There's so many classic clinical texts now you can read about this. One of the best ones is called, um, a th I think it's called a, a Theory of Love by Thomas Lewis, a great psychologist. Uh, all the work of Alan Shore, the great neuropsychologist and so forth. Dan Siegel. Um, pretty much it's the most important uh, understanding. Uh, we see this all the time. There was an interesting study that was done by Martin Seligman, the, 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 who ran the American Psychiatric Association. And all he did was he wondered which kind of therapy is the most effective. And so he did this massive study. And you know he wanted cognitive behavioral therapy to be shown to be the best. So he had all these different, you know, thousands of people go to different kinds of therapeutic modalities. And at the end, when they crunched the numbers, the only factor they saw at all that made up the difference was whether or not the therapist was empathetic. Didn't matter what they were doing, whether they were doing talk therapy, somatic therapy, whether they were doing um, gestalt, whether they were doing uh, any other kind. So long as the therapist made the patient or the, or the client feel seen, feel emotionally understood, the healing would ensue. And all of the markers of obsessive ideations and suicidal ideations and depressive uh, relapses would be alleviated. Didn't matter which kind of therapy. So what do we need to have this attunement? Well, there's four factors in attachment theory. We need to be 
seen and be understood. And that's pretty basic. Being seen and understood, feeling safe with the person, that's just someone who's around who won't go away, who's interested in your emotions, who looks and, and takes in. A second quality we need is to be soothed, which is um, when you're in distress, someone who will just listen and maybe offer you a, an expression of concern, you know, empathy, maybe a gentle like touch if it's appropriate. Um, someone who just creates a sense that your suffering is important to them, that they care about you. And so they not only mirror your emotions, but they care and they will stay with you as you down a bit as you down regulate. The third quality is being appreciated, right? And that's someone who delights in your creative expression when you take a risk, when you're silly, when you dance, when you're spontaneous. Someone who takes a delight in that, who doesn't shame you or look like, what the hell are you doing? They are interested, they approve, they, they like it. The fourth quality is marking. The marking is when a parent indicates to the child, like if a child's upset, the mother will first go, oh, you're upset, and show it, you know, an upset face to indicate she gets it, but then the mother will go, but I'm okay. So I know you're in this distressed state, but it's not, it's not making me vulnerable. I can take care of you, I'm okay, I'm not going to be pulled out of my, you know, I can still be uh, a secure person for you to rely on. I'm not. Because you're upset doesn't mean I'm going to become upset and it'll become disastrous. When parents fail to mark that they're okay, children begin to believe that their emotions can in some way you know, contaminate, take over, consume their parents, and they don't feel secure anymore. And it even amplifies their distress. So we need to feel safe and seen, we need to feel soothed, we need to feel appreciated, and we need uh, someone who is, has enough emotional integrity and stability themselves that they, can, that they won't be in any way dysregulated by ourselves. So when we get that, everything starts to work well. We start to relax, we feel secure, we can sleep, we can engage, we can feel uh, soothed. If we don't get it, studies show uh, over time we become deeply dysregulated. Kochiopo shows that it leads to extremely distressing uh, uh, personality disorders. A massive study showed that lack of secure connection and attunement is literally a mortal threat as dangerous as smoking uh, a pack of cigarettes a day as well as drinking. So it, because of its effect on the nervous system. So I'm going to give you a few, few examples of what we would look for uh, amongst friends and relationships. So I, I came up with these off the top of my head. Just work with it, just, you know. So friend A says, I'm going to need to find a new apartment soon. It's such a bummer. I don't have any savings to move and I can't afford to put down a, a deposit. And they shake their heads sadly. So their emotion the emotionally absent friend response from their other friend listening to this would be, oh, you should check out Craigslist. <clears throat> now that might seem like it's an okay response. It's a totally inadequate response because the person is essentially just addressing this other human being like a puzzle to be solved. Just essentially trying to um, address logistics. Yeah, good. Um, they're totally ignoring the person's feelings. They're essentially solving the person. They're not building a trusting environment. But suppose you get an emotionally attuned response. What would that be? It would be like, Oh man, that really sucks. That sounds hard. You know, can, is there any way I can be of help? How can I just, you know, I, I totally get how stressful that would be. Something that 
acknowledges the emotions, validates the person, doesn't make them feel alone, doesn't essentially turn them into something that just needs to be solved. Here's another example in a relationship. She, a customer insulted me at work. I'm fed up with my job. I just want to not go back. I want to quit. His emotionally or her girlfriend's emotionally absent response, just don't listen to them. They're all assholes. <laughs> so this entirely misses the feelings and doesn't in any way meet the need for understanding. It's instructive. It's not empathetic. The attuned response would be, ouch, that sounds really hard. You must have wanted to insult them back. I can totally, I can, I wouldn't want to go back to that job either. Okay. That doesn't mean she's, you're not, he's not, in, or she, the girlfriend or boyfriend is not encouraging them to quit or not encouraging them to stay. They're just saying it's okay to feel the way you feel. And when somebody makes your feelings feel okay, what happens is it regulates the emotions. And then they can turn your, their emotions into adaptive actions. Instead of just being angry and yelling, they can set boundaries at work or they can decide whether or not they really need to quit, but not from a reactive place of withdrawal, but from a fully socially engaged place of, well, what are my options? How could maybe I should uh, go in and be clear I have to change nature of my job. Here's the last one. Roommate. Oh wait, the good yeah, I gave you a good response. Okay, roommate. Our apartment's getting messy. Can you remember to wash your dishes and clean up the bathroom? I really need to keep a, a, a neat house to feel comfortable. Okay, well, all that is essentially treating another human being as someone to set a whole bunch of demands to it doesn't acknowledge that they might have their own stresses, their own issues. On the other hand, suppose the roommate says, you know, I can see how much you've got going on. It's a lot. I've heard you talk about how stressful your work is. So I know it's not the best time to ask you this, but could we talk about how together we could work to keep the apartment a little cleaner? It would just make me feel a little bit more relaxed. And I want this to be a safe place so that you can come home and relax as well. So in that, the person before they're giving me and they're making the request, they're acknowledging the other person's emotional state. No matter how skillful our parents were, no matter how much love we got in the past, we never graduate from this need for attunement, this need for concern, and other people in our life never graduate from it either. To be in ongoing empathetic or trusting relationships demands that we constantly bear in mind, or what's called mentalize, other people's emotional states and seek those who can understand our own. So the Buddha, the Buddha had four basic uh, definitions of love and trust as well as the four I listed from attachment perspective. The first is what's called meta, which is, it used to be called unconditional friendliness. I think that's a horrible uh, translation because it's simply a welcoming, uh, empathetic disposition. It's bearing in mind that other human beings are capable of peace and peace of mind that uh, it inclines us to try to connect with them first rather than evaluate judge or essentially treat them as uh, people in our way it's just a um, it's trying to have an open regard a non-judgmental regard even if we've already had a bunch of different stressful interactions with someone, each time trying to go in where, from a place of first trying to uh, understand what emotional state they're in, not try to just view them as an obstacle, even if in, in our past it's been unpleasant. Barbara Fredrickson has shown the more we practice meta, 
may all beings be peaceful or may all beings uh, feel welcome or whatever phrase you want to know you need the more we practice this the more we wind up and broaden and build parasympathetic relax and digest it's she has a whole book called love 2.0 where she does all these studies with meta meditation and shows just how effective they are for changing the nervous system and it engages what's called the vagal break which actually slows down the heart rate slows down your blood lowers your blood pressure allows your immune system to function allows you to not be reactive but to be responsive the difference between react and respond is when you react you only have one impulse and you go with it responsive is where you evaluate different impulses and you choose the impulse that has the best long-term outcome so the more you're in parasympathetic the more you practice meta the more you'll be able to salvage difficult relationships and maintain good relationships the second is compassion compassion is what we is the uh, concern that we feel when someone is suffering that we can possibly we want it to stop we don't judge it we don't immediately jump to well in some feeling of uh, you know of superiority or some sense of distance it's just an, a warning other people not to suffer and as horrible as Trump is and he's really horrible I don't want him to suffer <laughs> I just want him to start acting skillfully and understand but I don't wish suffering upon any human being because when human beings suffer they become more and more reactive more and more unskillful less and less capable of finding new ways skillful ways to address challenges so when we encounter suffering we, we hope it will stop and we adapt a, cons a, a disposition where we are uh, not judging it but are more empathetic sympathetic joy is considered to be the most difficult it's appreciating when someone is doing well and Buddhists since for the last 2,500 years have said oh god of all the Brahma Vagars that's the one I hate the most because it runs counter to the to our deeply embedded left hemispheric belief that happiness can be solved by accumulating by getting more for ourselves, by accumulating more uh, tribal rewards so caring at, at when someone is doing well feeling good for them it feels like it's coming at our expense at times it feels like okay I can I can get compassion but do I really have to feel good about when other people are doing well like how hard is that when you're not in a relationship you want to be in a relationship and you see a happy couple isn't it totally <laughs> normal to just say well fuck them <laughs> the last thing I want to see is just like this couple you know there was actually a a very I read a funny interview with someone who said I became the most low yeah, person alive because I gave an interview where I said I was happily in love with someone so um, yeah it's really hard because we have deep we're deeply uh, wedded to our left hemispheric perception that happiness is a zero-sum game if I'm if someone else is happy or content or doing well it comes from my expense it means they're getting more resources than me so it alleviates competitive competition enviness it allows us to re remind ourselves of what truly pr provides happiness which is connection and there's no limit to human connection at all um, the last quality though is equanimity which is uh, essentially knowing how much we can do for another but not getting pulled in it's that marking we told about earlier where a mother indicates that to a child I get it you're unhappy you're lonely you're sad but I'm not so I can 
you know, I know how much I can offer to you. Empathy is essentially setting boundaries for ourselves, not allowing ourselves to be dragged into or dysregulated by another person's emotional state. It's knowing how much attention we can give. So these are the same, if you notice, almost identical to the core four qualities of attachment, the Buddha's definition of the, these four divine states of loving uh, presence is almost identical to what secure attachment. It's that ability to empathize and welcome and care. It's the ability to be compassionate when someone is suffering and try to soothe. It's the ability to have a set of delight or a sense of joy when they're doing well. But it's also knowing what our limits are and being able, if someone is, you know, we can't help them, being willing to disconnect. It's what Al-Anon is entirely about, an entire 12-step program. The ability to, when someone we're close with is, an, is caught up in addiction or mental dysregulation due to a personality disorder, it's the ability to say, okay, I care about you, but I cannot be the one who tries to solve this because it's not working. It's, um, it's very easy to feel empathy for people we don't know. But it's very hard to feel empathy for people we love and care about. With, I mean, not empathy. It's very, sorry, uh, equanimity. Equanimity is the ability to, to detach. It's very difficult to do that. The Buddha taught that no one person can solve anybody else's suffering. That it takes a, it takes a bunch of people. We know this to be true from Robin Dunbar, the great evolutionary psychologist who showed that we all have different types of people in our life. We have sort of this 150 people we're capable of knowing and keeping track of. And then there's about 25 to 40 people who we will consider to be friends or people you might invite to a party or whatever. There's that five or six people that you feel confident, hopefully to reveal how you're feeling and trust that you won't be judged. And those five people, or six, your core support group, are determinant, determinant about your emotional, biophysical state of being. If you have those five people that you can run with the Buddha called Kalyanamita, you'll do okay. The last is the A person. That's the person that you're in a relationship with. If you're in a relationship, that's the person who will bring you soup when you're sick. That's the person you might be having sex with if all's going well. But that A person is not determinative to your mental health. And if you try to get all your needs for attunement from that A person, what's going to happen is your relationship's going to implode. Because there's going to be a time when both of you are stressed out and then there won't be anyone present to limbically regulate you back up. So you need to have those five people to keep you sane. Then the A person can there do their job of making a felt presence of love being available, but not being the thing that will fix you. Then you won't go into relationships trying to get something from your partner. You'll go in trying to offer what you have. Then there won't be this worry about engulfment from each other if you have that core support group. So we're going to do a meditation that we're going to put into effect these four Brahma Viharas that the Buddha talked about, which are the loving dispositions that will allow us to maintain a healthy interaction with both friends and loved ones. I'm going to name four phrases um, but don't, the phrases in and of themselves don't matter. You can use whatever phrases you want. In fact, I encourage you to make them your own. The most important is to try to feel the feelings when you do the practice. So again, the four feelings are care or welcoming, compassion, uh, appreciation of another person's happiness, and equanimity, the ability to detach when you've done enough. The ability to remind yourself that you cannot fix or solve someone else. 
that their happiness at the end of the day requires them to connect with a, a group that you cannot rescue anyone. So we'll use phrases, may you be peaceful and live with ease. I care about your suffering. May your happiness continue. And I am not in control of what unfolds. I cannot fix or rescue you. You must do that through your own connections and skillful actions. So those are the four qualities. Try to feel them in your heart. We're going to now do a meditation where we will practice them. So let's just relax, close our eyes. Just settle in. So do whatever you need to do to make your body feel more comfortable. Don't try to be a meditator. Don't try to don't have any felt or imagined sense of what you should look like. Just allow your body to come to what feels like a nice upright position. And then we'll take a few breaths just to soothe and also try to get us into a parasympathetic state. You can also adjust by the way you breathe. So take a full in-breath through the nose and while you do that, lift your shoulders up and then rotate them back to open up your chest. And then as you release, just drop your shoulders. So you're trying to make your arms as heavy as possible. Don't hold them up at all, but keep the shoulders just a little bit more arched back to open up your chest, just to get that nice, full, confident embodied posture. Just sending a nice message up through the insula that I'm okay. And then another full in-breath and either push out or pull in your abdomen. Just make it really uncomfortable for a moment. And then long, slow out-breath. And soften your belly. And then full in-breath and squinch the muscles in your face, lock the jaw, furrow the brow, pinch the nose, make the ugly little sort of contracted face. And then as you breathe out, release the jaw, unclench, unfurrow the forehead, soften the micro-muscles around the eyes, And then relaxing into the present moment, the sensations, the sounds, the feelings of the body. Like you were on the first day of a vacation, the last thing you want to do is think about unresolved business or things you need to do some future time. You just want to come to a complete stop in life. You want to land in your body. The best moments in life are when we come to a complete stop and when we just become fully aware of what's happening around us and relax into it. We very often believe that those moments can only happen at special locations. In fact, they can happen every day if we just allow ourselves to come to a complete stop, to truly land in our life. Nothing to do, 
nowhere to go, nothing to take care of, just fully wanting to release all the momentum and come to a complete stop, allowing the eyes to settle in the eye sockets. And for a little while, we'll just allow ourselves to keep in the front of our awareness the breath and the body, allowing any thoughts or body feelings to be there as well any sounds, any light flickering behind the eyelids. But try to incline your exhalations to be as long and smooth as possible. The longer the out-breath, the more likely you'll be in the rest, digest, and engage state of the nervous system. The, one of the most efficient ways along with connecting with a friend is just long, smooth, unforced out-breath. Breathing in releases the break and your heart rate soars, your blood pressure goes up. Breathing out. Blood Pressure lowers, heart rate lowers. So you want to spend as much time breathing out, not pushing the air out, just releasing. And so for a while, we'll just sit here, just being fully present in our lives. And whenever your mind creates a distraction, an image, a thought about the past, or speculation about the future, or anything like that. Just note it. <coughs> Don't get in any way frustrated. Every time you get lost in a thought, it's an opportunity when you return back to your life, to your home, in the present moment. It's like a miniature awakening. You're strengthening the circuits that allow you to return to presence. That's something to be celebrated.
So at this time, I'd like you to bring to mind someone that you just met, someone that you don't know very well. Could be someone that you have no inclinations towards or someone that you would like to get to know better. Just hold them in the screen, the movie screen in your mind where you might visualize or you could visualize the place that you live or just hold them up there. If you're not a very capable of holding visual images in your mind, just say their name in your mind. And then let's cultivate the four dispositions of love and secure connection. May you be peaceful, live with ease, It's creating that feeling of not indifference, just a welcoming regard. How does that feel in your body? See if you can feel that sense, that somatic openness to someone. And then imagining that person might be in distress. Then developing a sense of care, compassion. The phrase might be, I care about your suffering. I care about you. How does that feel? And then imagine this person really happy, doing well, even though we might not be in an elated, particularly joyful state ourselves. Seeing their smile, their sense of excitement. Wishing their happiness continue. May your joy Continue. May it grow. A sense of a soft smile, encouraging them, appreciating. And then the fourth state, even though we may care, be compassionate and appreciative, also knowing the limits of our friendship. At the end of the day, I cannot rescue you or heal you. No one person can. I can only do what I'm capable of. It's only through support of many that we heal.
at the end of the day, your happiness is ultimately your responsibility. And now bring to mind someone that we love, that we really do feel close to, not a stranger, but someone who's very important to us. Hold them in, our, in their image in our mind or just whisper their name. Adapting a welcoming regard in the body, relaxing. May you be peaceful and live with ease. No judgment. Care, I care about you. Or maybe imagining them stressed or in need of support and then feel that compassion. I care about your suffering. I care about your distress. Imagining this friend or loved one's happiness, even though we might not feel happy. May your joy continue appreciating that they've done something skillful to deserve this sense of elation or uplift, appreciating their efforts. Lastly, with this loved one or this close friend or this person that's important to us. But I cannot rescue you. I cannot heal you alone. Your peace of mind is your responsibility. Care, but also a sense of Wisdom. And finally, I'd like you to take for the last person a journey back in time to a point in your life when you needed love and care and appreciation. Maybe there wasn't enough kindness. Imagine taking, hold an image of yourself at this time. Maybe you're a child, maybe you're a teen. Maybe something has happened in your family or you just feel very alone. And just hold an image of yourself as you might have appeared in this vulnerable point of your life. Just hold this image of yourself in your mind. And develop that first state of care openness, welcome. May you be peaceful. May you live with ease. I care about you. And now imagine yourself at this time visibly expressing sadness or anxiety loneliness, 
confusion, overwhelm. I care about your suffering. I care about you just as much when you're hurting as any other time. Now imagine yourself at a time you were happy, smiling, excited. I care about and appreciate your joy. May it continue. May you reap the benefits of all your endeavors. And lastly, no matter how much I care and appreciate you, Ultimately, your peace of mind is your responsibility. May you find all the people you need to help you feel secure and supported. May you remember how much we all need others to flourish. Letting go of your image and just very slowly, whenever you're ready, open your eyes.